During the course of our conversation with the novelist Diana Abu Jaber, several mysterious interior technicians began to make unusual noises. Noises that we couldn't quite peg. They taped unknown papers to the insides of walls and talked and hammered cavalierly, producing so much commotion that it was absolutely impossible to elide their intrusion from the audio. Thus, the producers apologize for the rending staccato qualities which oscillate in and out at unusual points throughout oh, our this one has got to be by far the worst because it's the biggest book tour. Yeah. And writing about a French pastry chef, like all these venues are bringing in French pastries or people are bringing me pastries. Oh, I've had no. people bring me cookies and <laughs> croissants and Napoleons. And I mean, it's just fantastic. Yeah. But it's kind of like... Oh my god, how am I going to fit into my airplane seat on the way home? Because it's wild. And of course I have to eat them all. Yeah, so you have to eat them all? You can't give them away to generous readers who have been standing in line or anything? <laughs> yeah, right. Excellent, my excellent, my excellent interviewers. Um, I, you know, actually I have given out some of my pastries. But I have to admit, I want to eat all of them if possible. I noticed that Ron Charles, the first sentence of his review in the Washington Post was, Diana Abu-Jabbar's delicious new novel weighs less than two pounds, but you may gain more than that by reading it. Yeah. So this seems as good a time as any to talk about your propensity for describing food in very uh, lurid terms. Um, I mean, to offer an example, you even have those moments between dialogue. In Crescent, you have, she starts splitting open heads of garlic and picking at the papery skin covering the cloves. Now, this is between lines. Mm -hmm. So it forces one to both be engaged with the text and also it forces one's saliva to start running. I, I, and so the question is, is, is how this, this business with food started. Oh, it's not something I did deliberately. I didn't choose this metaphor. It's weird. I think that a lot of it came up because of being raised by a food-obsessed yes. parent. Yeah, that my dad always wanted to have his own restaurant. He, as an immigrant from Jordan, he used food as a way of giving his children his culture. And so... I grew up with this sensibility just informing uh, the very fabric of our days. Yeah. Um, and then my grandmother was a very serious Irish Catholic baker. And so my grandmother and my father waged this war over our souls, the, the, the children, yeah. to try and woo us through their separate crafts, if you will. Yes. And so I grew up between, you know falafel and cream puffs and <laughs> between dad's wonderful Jordanian cuisine and yeah. my grandmother's incredibly yummy cookies and cakes and pastries. And no doubt along with that came a very imposing exercise regimen. Uh, yeah. Well. I, I, I mean, that's that's got to be uh, terrible. Uh, wooing people through food, you're wooing your readers with food. I mean, why, why was food the... Uh, the ultimate, uh, I suppose, uh, axe to wield here, <laughs> as opposed to, say, fashion or conversation or whatnot. It's, it's something that kind of happened organically in this book. I knew that 
I saw this woman. I was thinking about the book, and I had this image in my head of a woman wearing a chef's apron. Yeah. And I could see her back, and I could see that she had these very strong arms and shoulders. So I knew that she was someone who worked with her hands, and, and it came very clear to me that she was a pastry chef. And I had worked in food journalism for a while. I, I used to have a restaurant column. And I you would were a interview. restaurant critic? I was. I was a restaurant critic. Did you ever critic. tear a restaurant to shreds? <laughs> I think I'm a pretty nice person. And I, I try to offer constructive <laughs> criticism. <laughs> but you are aware that you're doing a social service by yeah. being a food critic. Yes. So you have to help the consumer as well as the purveyor. Yeah. And uh, I might have shredded a little bit. Yeah. Well, like such as what? So what, what oh. kind of constructive criticism was the worst that you possibly oh, endowed? Geez. Well, I, you know what I would do is I would try to offer people little guidelines about what to avoid in general. Yeah. And I remember one of my big ones was, if the restaurant has a great view, beware of the food. <laughs> yeah, that's actually very true. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah Especially in this view. city too. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Or or if it's like in a railroad car, yeah. or you know, if there's a gigantic playground in the middle of it, you know, that it's probably not going to be the best. Or, or the infamous rotating restaurants. Ah, yes. You know, if it moves, don't chew. <laughs> it, it's, which is a shame because it's a, such a. I, I'm a big fan of rotating restaurants, not for the food, but for just the sort of, I guess, kitsch of the experience. Sure, yeah. sure, and and you have to oh, just remember that some people are going for experience. Yeah. You know, I am somebody who likes to eat for the food. But I know that for many, many people, atmosphere trumps all. Yeah. So. Did you ever get a restaurant wrong during these early days? Did you get irate readers sending you letters saying, Diana, you are absolutely off the wall. <laughs> who do you think you are? Anything like that? Or? I've gotten, I used to get irate um, letters from um, restaurateurs, yes. from the people that felt like I'd gotten them wrong. I remember I did a, a vegetarian Roundup once um, the vegetarian restaurants of Portland and and one of the local restaurant owners wrote to me irate absolutely irate because he had some vegetarian dishes on his menu yeah and he just thought I I should have included him and um, he just really wanted to let me know that yes you know I had disrespected him be thankful that you didn't get involved with the vegans because they weren't around back then yikes oh <laughs> lord in heaven i think they're at that time now we're talking this is the late nine, yeah. 90s so at that time there was maybe one vegan restaurant and yeah. what they tried to do was present faux meat yes you know so you'd go and you'd have like turkey sculpted out of soybean and tofurkey stuff. yeah right yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, that was a whole other can of beans, so to speak. So just to be straight here on the food issue, I mean, you would not identify yourself as a foodie, but a more egalitarian food person. Yeah, I, I'm sympathetic to the, the whole foodie idea, yeah. but I think that foodieism, if that's a word, um, it tends to elevate food to this sacred thing you know yeah. it's like this exalted object on an altar place basically yeah and 
I, I just have never felt like that was the point of enjoyment um, uh, of any kind of, you know, primary activity like eating. That food is something that adds enormously to our lives, but that it's a, it's a simple thing and that yeah. we're animals and that animal enjoyment is just a natural, easy part of our lives, or it should be. Well, it went from something that was fairly harmless like Brillier Savaron and MFK Fisher who offered the perfectly sensible advice of, well, if uh, we're spending so much of our time eating, we should probably pay attention to it, but also still champion food culture during the Depression, you know? Yes. And, and, and this is the thing, that, that it went from this rather egalitarian place to something that was ridiculously elitist or Teggy Gasset like yes you know? yes yeah. yeah we've really we have um, started rhapsodizing about food and nobody wants to make it yeah you know people go out and they buy cookbooks because they love the they love the images and yeah. they love the idea of it and reading the cookbook like literature but yeah. really Nobody tries the recipes. Yeah, I know. That's the fun part. Yeah, Especially when you make it with other people who are clueless with you, as you are, you know? Right. You're all in it together. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I, as, as an individual, as a parent, you know, I, I want to make good, easy, nutritious food, you know? And, um, and as a writer, I like, I like the metaphor of food because it's so malleable. Yeah. Um, it it casts light on all these different elements in our psyche, all the different ways that we look at relationships in general. It's not. I don't write about food to stop in food. It's that's sort of not the point. It's more a filter through which to look at experience. Sure, sure. Have you seen while you're while you've been here in New York some of our ridiculous gourmet food trucks? Where they're now, it, it totally defeats the purpose of a food truck. Where before you get a hot dog for a right, dollar, or you'd get right. like some shish kebab or some sort of falafel for really cheap. Now they have gourmet food trucks here. You should check these out. Empanadas that are really overpriced, like six bucks. Oh, it's, really? It's, it's like it's now become you know they've taken our food trucks. Wow. The, the, the food trucks have gentrified. Wow. I, I mean, you know, this this leads me to wonder, just as a fiction writer. <laughs> whether you, you you may explore this in a future book, this issue of like, well, we make our food, but now even the the price of food goes up, and the experience of eating food goes up, right. and even you know something like white trash cuisine, even the good parts of that, right. then become taken away from us, so that there is no sort of like I guess affordable base like there used to be the traditional kind of food thing. Right. I guess I I have some feelings on this issue now that you, we've talked about. Yeah, this. <laughs> absolutely. Well, because yeah. it's a it's an economic issue as well. Yeah. It's a you know it's health and it's relationships and family and economics for sure, um, and that's part of the problem with the the foodie movement is yeah. that foodies indulge in a kind of um, extreme experience yeah. you know they're the they're the top of the pyramid the uh, the people who can afford to go into Williams Sonoma and yeah. buy a special strawberry huller you know yeah. Yeah. Um, it's or going just that experience of going into a glorious kitchen in which none of the instruments in the kitchen have been touched 
you know, it's, it's more like an operating room than it is a kitchen. It's almost like a trail of tears kind of thing, too, because you have <laughs> to find the produce places that the middle class people have not found yet. Right. So I'm never going to name them on the air, the places I get really kick-ass produce, right? Right, but, you know. right, right. Yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah. And you see that in um, the farmer's markets. Yes, overpriced, oh, needlessly yeah. organic, and God, don't get me started on that. <laughs> Absolutely, that's... We will discuss fiction, don't worry. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, that that is what I, I wanted to get into, like, the, the dark side. Yeah. Definitely the dark side of sugar. Yes. The dark side of the organic food movement, that... that the spectrum of our relationship to food as these characters wage their wars over it. So, yeah. Um, During the course of my research to shift topics, we'll probably get back to food, I have a feeling, (laughs) but I found an interesting YouTube video that you did in which there were several astonishing personal revelations. Yikes. Yes. The first first being (laughs) that, that you actually have no routine, which was astonishing. The second being that you write while you cook. The third being that you write while you are at stuck at a red light. So this is fascinating to me <laughs> for a number of reasons. Because if we look at the last three novels, we're dealing with Crescent, which is sort of a, a free-form, uh, not-so-cohesive narrative, but still has very interesting things to say about consciousness and identity, to Origin, which has to adopt by necessity the the framework of a police procedural in order to entrap the narrative to this where we're getting into almost Christos Cholkas territory with a slap Mm. where it's more of a social novel where we have multiple perspectives I feel compelled to ask you how without parroting the previous answer because we're not about that here on the Bad Secret Show um, how this lack of routine how you managed to corral this with this clear development in um, your in your novels towards a greater cohesive narrative structure that is really airtight that is which things are really locked into place i mean it's not the kind of book i would expect from a more uh i guess uh, free-floating soul you know uh, what i'm saying well i thank you ed i take that as a great compliment i am that makes me happy to hear it you know because yeah. it's certainly been something that i have felt committed to as uh, just as a writer yeah um you know i I came into writing in this kind of yes free-floating more of a stylist's kind of approach and it just over the years of reading and thinking about thinking about the books that i love and that i want to read i know that what really captivates me is a great story and characters deeply challenging provocative engaging sympathetic whatever it is that there's something in a character that grabs me yeah and and i just became aware that as a writer this is what i want to read this is what i want to write um and i started to really commit myself to trying to study um study those elements of craft really and looking at how different writers do it and thinking about who I love and who I don't love you know um, 
where are the writers that seem to fall down on these things? And I think we all make these artistic decisions. It's certainly there are writers who you go into their book and they write so beautifully. It doesn't really matter that there's not an immediate storyline to to take you through. You're just willing to stay in their heads, you yeah. know, and listen to them think about things and kind of chew over the fact of existence. Um, and I absolutely admire that. But I personally don't necessarily want to read it. Yeah. Um, so in part, it was simply about getting more honest with myself about what I wanted as a consumer. Um, and also part of it was... As a consumer, not as a lover of literature? Wait a minute here. We're getting into the business terms in which that you, in fact send up yeah. in Birds of Paradise. Yeah. What's going on here? Yeah, yeah, Why, right? In fact, you've used, this is the second time you've used consumer here. So <gasps> Yikes, I, really? I, I'm a little, yes. What about art? Ah, art! <laughs> Save me what from about art! Integrity? No, no, no but, but, but going back to, to this issue of how you get to this honest place without a routine. Uh, right. This is what what what, curi- what I'm curious about. What, mm. I, what I, I'm really intrigued by is how something that is apparently so slipshod results in something so honed. So, so <laughs> what, what happens to get you from this place of constant distractions, maybe a paragraph here, a paragraph there, to the, yeah. what I read earlier from Crescent, that, that, that garlic moment. You know? Right, the garlic yes, moment. the garlic yeah. moment between the dialogue. <laughs> right. Yeah. Where does the garlic moment from? Um, I think it's, I think it's an accumulative way of writing. I tend to be pretty opportunistic in my approach to making the most of those moments, you know, of those moments in between activities and things. Um, and, and you're right, I've always been that way. I've always had that approach. Um, and I've, I used to beat myself up about it. I used to feel very bad that I wasn't um, more direct and kind of disciplined in the way I approached it. And then I just realized I'm still writing these things. They're still coming together. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe partly what helps me studying the form in, in the writers that I admire, writing outlines so that each book before I begin it, I generally have an outline that at least gives me a direction. Yeah. Um, and then rewriting the heck out of stuff. Sure. So like every single book that I write, I write a first draft and then I completely rewrite it from beginning to end. Um, and, and there are multiple rewrites and revisions in addition to that, but it's a hugely laborious, time-consuming pro- project. Um, and I don't recommend it for an- everyone by yeah. any means. If you can skip it, you know, more power to you. But because I have such a fragmented approach to the writing process, I do have to almost write the darn thing before I know what I'm, I'm going to write. Does that part where you are devising the outline is that less laborious than the rewriting and the honing of the prose? Yes. Yeah. Very definitely because the re- the outline it's just to kind of give me a suggestion. Yeah. But it's 
it's very very flexible and i always depart from it yes yeah so yeah that's my that's my glorious vision of the book before i you know start writing it and wreck the whole thing so <laughs> so you don't really worry about deadlines or when something is supposed to be done or or do you i mean how how does your relationship with your editor work yeah. in, 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 when it's yeah. taking its own time when you're working at your own pace when the art is going to produce no matter what right right yeah, yeah i right. mean you know there, there are publishers here who are ready to publish one of your books and you're frittering around or it's not going right. as slowly or even as fast as you would expect mm-hmm that's yeah, it's hard. And I think the, the person who has the most anxiety around deadlines is me. That uh-huh. I'm, I set my own imaginary deadlines of when I want to be through a certain point. And my editor is, is wonderful. She's a very much, a, she is an artistically minded editor. She is someone with a great literary sensibility. Um, so she does appreciate and want a deeply rich and artistic project not that i'm going to give it to her but i know that's what she wants and um and so she she will simply say take the time that you need yeah or perhaps that's another way of saying nobody's waiting for this book so just take your darn time to write it um but uh yeah no it's that is that is not a problem yeah with that in mind, uh-huh. there is, in fact, one descriptive tick I have observed oh. in your work. And that is this tendency to have your characters play with their hair, which you're doing right now. Oh, my God. That's really funny. <laughs> to cite one example in Birds of Paradise, Fernanda, her oh. hair spills forward, partially obscuring the side of her face. But there's often the, the grabbing the curls. Oh I've noticed this God. in all of your books. Really? Oh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I didn't mean to be conscious of this, but I only bring it up <laughs> because in Birds of Paradise, you have given Avis a balding situation, yes. which is very interesting. So I'm, I have to ask, to what degree did you introduce the whole balding scenario with which to get away from this tick? Or was it simply an effort on your part to pursue an element of, of women who age that is really not seen too often in fiction? Yeah, no, I, I, it was something that I started thinking about because I had a... I mean, this is a convoluted story, but... Oh, feel free. We're all okay. about convolution Okay, here. <laughs> so the convoluted story is I got bitten by a brown recluse spider. Really? Yes. That was, that's a whole epic saga unto itself. So, um, and it was a really intense bite. The, those things are nasty. Yeah. And um, it, I will spare you the incredibly gory details, but... The, the words separating wound should um, oh, suffice yes. here. Conjure up some oozing imagery. Oh, yes. wow. I mean, I multiple visits to the emergency room and um, all kinds of lancing and um, incredibleness. And it took me months to, to recover and heal from this wound. And so I had to go to the dermatologist... Um, over and over and over again. They were very concerned that I was going to lose flesh in my leg. There was a time when they thought I might lose my leg. Really? Wow. Is that poisonous? It's very unbelievably venomous. Unbelievable. And they're, oh, you want to go online, you'll see some crazy 
Anyway, if you get bitten by a brown recluse, don't go online. That's all I can say, because you'll scare yourself. WebMD is going to not only give you inaccurate information, yeah, but it's right. also going to give you very terrifying, scare the living bejesus out of information. Exactly, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so you, you can and often will lose a lot of flesh to these wounds. And knock wood, lucky, thank you God, I did not. Um, I came away with a very superficial flesh wound. Um, but spending all that time in dermatologist offices, I got to know my dermatologist really well. And we were talking one day, she was sort of shaking her head about someone who just come in and she said, oh, another one. And I, I said, what another one? And she said, another woman losing her hair. Yeah. And then, you know, and we started talking about it, and she was saying that that, like, it used to be a tiny percentage of her business and that it had grown. And she said, like, half of her clients were losing their hair. And we were talking about, well, what is that? Why is that happening? And she, she was saying she thinks that there are, you know, partly it's that women are living longer. Partly it's environmental. Yeah. And I started thinking about that, about how, you know, if it's not, if it's not some kind of genetic reason that hair, skin, uh, teeth, that our bodies reveal what is wrong with our environment, yeah. that the body is the canary in the coal mine, so to speak. And, um, and we can ignore our environment, but that it speaks through us physically. And, and I thought about what that means for a woman to lose her hair, because it's not acceptable. Yeah. Um, and, and it just occurred to me that it would be very important to have a, a character, because I couldn't think of a character I'd read who has talked about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that was actually where that that started to come from and after I started writing about it suddenly all these women that I knew you know it's that kind of thing where you buy a, a VW bug and suddenly you're seeing them everywhere in the yes, street yes. and that's what happened to me suddenly all these women I was talking to or seeing like it was like this proliferation of thinning hair hair loss um, you know and all these different kinds of reasons and yeah, and I just felt like hair is one of those things like food that is so central, especially for a woman. Um, that is a, a huge part of identity. So, yeah. I, I have some minor vicarious relationships to the issue, but uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. no. But but for this hair situation, did you just rely on what this doctor had said, this anecdotal empirical evidence, or did you actually investigate and plunge in further? Oh yeah, I talked to. I had a number of friends. I had several friends who lost their hair for through chemo. Yeah. I had a a good friend who lost her hair for very mysterious reasons um, that seemed to be about stress. Yeah. Um, I had I had friends who lost their hair, I think, through because of hormonal changes in their bodies yeah. and their yeah. lives. You know, people who were very close to me and just talking, talking to them about what it meant to them and thinking about it and kind of, and just imagining how would I feel? What would that be like? What would I do? And I decided that I would cut all my hair off. That's what I would do. I would just cut it off, yeah. you know? And 
Did you do that during the course of writing this book? I didn't. No. I didn't. Didn't want to go all the way. You nah. felt that the constant influx of sad stories was enough. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I did. I, you know, my hair, if I cut it super short, it, it's like this horrible woolly helmet of curliness. And so it's not a good look. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to, while we're on the subject of research, ask about... For example, contrasting Felice's gutter punk culture in this with Brian's real estate subculture. Uh-huh. Uh, how much hands-on work did you do for this? Did you, in fact, attempt writing skateboards? Did it involve repeat viewings of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross? What happened here? <laughs> well, um, I did a ton of research, yeah. a ton. I, For Felice's section, I went out to Miami Beach, you know, where she runs away. Sure. And... Um, and talked to all these street kids, you know, went into the street kid culture, hung out with them, went to the um, houses. They, they live in like these squats, yeah. you know, they're all these kids who they fly under the radar. They're not going to rescue missions or anything like that. They're just going to abandon shacks and trying to take care of each other. A lot of that in Portland, too, and in the West oh, Coast. Yeah. yeah, I saw a lot of that in, in California. Absolutely, absolutely. That's a, almost a mecca for it. Um, and just, like, listening to them, listening to their stories, listening to the cadences of the way they talk to each other, um, and getting their getting their experiences basically trying to be as hands-on as i could be as you know somebody decades older and you know completely removed from their experience did you observe some of the 30-something people as well who you depict in your novel yes i did some of the kind of people who are just coasting along Mm -hmm. sometimes having kids sometimes just hanging out there and doing nothing Yeah. yeah yeah i um, actually, they were the scariest to me of anybody. You know, the kids, it was one thing. They were they were very, uh, I mean, they look scary. Uh, uh, when you first see them, you think they're scary. You think they're dangerous. You think they're menacing. The second you start talking to them, you realize they're children. Yeah. They're just children. Um, and the 30-year-old people were the really troubling people they were people who um you know either had devastating mental illness which was a great deal of the time or they were just really like predatory yeah and they weren't supposed to be there um or had somehow opted out you know and this was what they were doing um and so that was It was very interesting to kind of look at that cross-section and see how these people were interacting. And then also looking at Miami Beach is so interesting because you've got this really destitute hand-to-mouth existence that was happening, but you also have incredible wealth. Yes. You know, and uh, the children of deposed dictators, you know, people who left their countries with all the wealth, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, And so the kids would go to these nightclubs and they'd party together and hang out together. And then at the end of the night, they'd go back to their separate existences. Yeah. And it was just such an interesting confluence of classes and education and um, 
and uh, cultural backgrounds, and it all kind of comes together in this weird, uneasy way in Miami Beach. Yeah. So it's sort of the dregs of the club kids culture that started in New York and spread into various cities in the '90s, and now this is sort of the uh, the entrails of that, and now it's become this culture of just hanging on. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you get the trust of these kids? I mean, you alluded earlier you were aware that you were older than them, mm-hmm, so... Mm-hmm. You know, um, the I kind of got entrees through... I would go to the local high schools. Yes. And, you know, had teachers who would let me talk to the some of the classes, and I would describe the project to them. And then um, a couple students talk to me they come up to me after class and well they would know so-and-so who'd run away or this person who had come back who had been uh, spent time on the beach you know and so it was through word of mouth this person would talk to this person and it took a while to get some introductions but um eventually a couple people from like the rescue missions who were who were part of the system would walk me over they'd just take me out into the beach or they'd take me to the squats and they would they would say oh here's this writer lady doing this crazy thing you know and i found that you know that these kids in these places i mean they would say like they they refer to themselves not as runaways but as throwaways yeah yeah um they they didn't want to be in these places most of them they they came from horrible abusive backgrounds or they'd been abandoned or literally thrown out and they wanted to tell their stories i i found in my limited experience um i started asking questions and inevitably they were excited and were just eager to have somebody to listen to them yeah because it's not a story that is told, especially now in the newspapers. Yeah. This, but, but this leads me to ask you, because Birds of Paradise, despite the fact that it does deal with issues like this, has this strange optimistic sheen over it. I mean, the sense I had was that everyone in this book is a victim of some kind. And that is kind of a way for you to broach very serious issues, such as these kids such as Brian's real estate thing, such as the lady who lives next door, Solange, who has the bird. This is a way for you to talk about economics issues, I would think. And so, so I, I, you know, I'm curious about how you developed the, the, the optimistic candor, so to speak, that is in this book. I'm glad to hear you say that. You know, I've had, I've had some people complain that they felt the book was too dark. Um, you know, a couple of women at my readings have come up to me and said they want to be uplifted during yeah. these economic times and that my book, they were afraid it was going to take them to dark places, you know. It's not like you wrote Last Exit to Brooklyn, though. I, right, <laughs> you know? I know. I think, I do think that this book is optimistic, yeah. you know, but... It's about as optimistic as you can make it given these really terrible times. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's, okay, I would say it's it's an optimistic book about realistic issues. Yes. You know, and and so they are hard issues. And it is, I don't have the answer to, like, parenting. You know, I don't know what do you do if your child runs away. I yeah. know that it is a terrible thing. It is a horrible 
confounding problem. Um, and so I feel like the best thing I can do is raise the questions and, and, and try, to, try to help order my own feelings about these things. And then if I write about things that matter to me on a really primary level, yeah. I, I have this hope that other people somewhere, somehow, will feel the same. Well, this is the same situation that Dickens was in. I mean, mm -hmm. he would present the issues, but he wouldn't necessarily have solutions. I mean, right. is, should fiction be in the business of proposing solutions, or do you think storytelling is the way to get this kind of stuff into people's heads? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, I, I don't know if there, there really ever is a, a human answer to yeah. anything, but there is... Uh, there is the the hope that if you read something, maybe it can help you recognize yourself, so you don't feel alone in yeah. the world, and and make that kind of a tether, that tie between readers and writers, and and just help you help you cope with the the wild morass of feelings that make up what it is to be a human being in sure. the world. It's hard to be alive, you know? Yeah. It's hard to be a human being. Going back to what you mentioned earlier about these women coming up to you saying, oh, this is too dark, this actually is something I, I was going to talk with you about anyway. I noticed that the New York Times book reviews, Christina Garcia, she liked Felice the best of your characters and called the sections between Felice's chapters interminable. Now, I did not share this viewpoint. <laughs> I found Avis's narcissism and uh, Stanley's selfishness to be just as interesting, but they're not exactly characters who have a nice sunny bow mm. to their stories. Right. Cynthia Ozick was going on with me about how one of her greatest frustrations as a novelist is that all these Amazon reviews are about, well, we have to have, as, as these women said, uplifting stories. We have to have positive stories. Do you think that unlikable characters or uh, not 100% sunny characters are getting a bad rap in contemporary fiction these days? Uh, to what degree do you think there's a stigma against these kinds of characters? And, and, and were you aware of this stigma? And what do you do as a writer to fight this? Boy, oh boy, that is the $10 billion question, yeah. isn't it? Um, I do think that there is that attitude out there, that there is um, a real drive. And I don't know if it has to do with our economic landscape yeah. um, or maybe there's just some kind of innate desire to to feel like you're friends with the people that you read about you know or find some kind of sympathetic connection I know that I enjoy reading about challenging provocative often dark characters yeah. you know I loved Olive Kittredge and she's not sunny she's not a uh, a fabulous person and I probably wouldn't want her to come over to my house anytime soon <laughs> but I love it because I think that it's fascinating engaging writing you know um, so I do think that there is a conundrum there let's say and and that all writers have to engage in, in a balancing act between um, understanding what they what pleases them and the conversation they're having, hopefully, they're having with their audience and their readers. Um, so 
yes, I do think that 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 there is that kind of bias yeah. or predilection out there. But I don't think it's the whole audience. And if you're if you are hopefully writing for a literary audience, you know, as well as a a wider one that might be genre readers or mass market readers, um, you're going to have a variety of of desires and a variety of of wishes. You know, I mean, I know that Esther Williams movies were very popular during the Great Depression. Yeah. And great, you know, that helped soothe and uplift a whole generation of moviegoers. But it wasn't the whole scene, you know. It wasn't the whole conversation. And there are always going to be lots and lots of people, I think, who want meatier, richer kinds of work. Or perhaps they say to themselves, well, fiction is supposed to be my escape mechanism. Right. I'm coming to fiction and then there's all this darkness. There was that whole nonsense earlier with, you know, YA and whether it's too dark. And it was just, I thought, a ridiculous conversation because as Sherman Alexie eloquently argued, well, uh, as kids we go to these things and we, we become stronger. Just as adults can do the same thing. They can confront these economic issues by going to fiction and actually perhaps, uh, I guess, flensing themselves of some of these hangs-ups. Yes, yes. You, it's, it's sort of interesting. It's like maybe all art forms contain their own educational learning arc. Yes. You know, and that you hope that your readers will step up to... Um, being willing to take the risk, take the gamble on going on the journey with you. You know, every book, every artistic experience it is its own risk because it's an investment of time. Yeah. Um, there's, there's probably no more expensive gamble out there than the gamble of opening a big, fat book. Sure. You know, and saying, all right, I'm trusting you now. Um, and, and it's gotten easier than ever for readers to back away from taking that risk with things like samples on e-readers and little you know snippets of things that they can read quickly and places like Amazon where they get little tastes of things. Um, so now you as a writer are more obligated to make that section that is excerpted that much more compelling. Yeah, it's and, true. And, and does that mean that you're more driven in this ebook world by these commercial forces, these consumeristic forces mm. that we were talking about earlier? Mm. It, it may be. It, it's new enough to me that I haven't felt it yet. Yeah. I'm still sort of learning about that world um, and kind of ordering my own feelings about it. Um, I do know that you know, like I'm married to a big genre reader, yeah. and he's always after me. You know, write a thriller, write a mystery, write something hard hitting and quick moving. That's and the origin of origin. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, he was. He was a big. He was a big influence in that book. Yeah, but even he, he's like dissatisfied with it because he's like, oh, it was literary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really? He's yeah. that kind of. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but. You know, come on, I, come to team inclusiveness. You know, yeah, right, right, <laughs> exactly. Um, I do. I, you know, I write to please my husband as well as myself, as well as my mother. You know, I, I think about, I think about the people around me and yeah. and just what makes that immediate little group happy. Those are your ideal readers. Those are your immediate audience. Yeah. Do you? 
to what degree do you think of an audience beyond that? It's it gets more shadowy once you move outside the immediate circle of people. I think that's why it's good to have a writing group. Actually, I do work with a, a writing group. I always have had, you know, however fragmented or loosely knit. I've always had some kind of group of associates or compadres who I show my work to, um, because I do think it's very good and helpful to have actual living human beings in your life that you can think about as you write Um, because it's hard to imagine anyone you know any stranger who might be interested in any story I'd write so do you think that such coteries protect you and insulate you from say needs on the commercial end hey Diana you know what you're writing about issues that are too bleak I'm afraid that you're going to have to go ahead and create a sunnier ending here. Right, right. You know, I, I mean, to what degree is this a problem for you? Well, you know, I, I think the more you get reviewed, the more those voices do get into your head. And, um, you know, like that, the review you quoted, it's, you know, I argued with it in my head and I worried over it and I tried to understand, you know, where I thought I, I could improve or what I should do to respond you know in my work and and talking to people in my writing group really helped me regain my balance it's just so hard to be a writer yeah you know especially if you're working at something that seems sort of anachronistic as literary fiction yes. you know you you start to feel like you're creating stained glass windows for cathedrals or something you view yourself as a literary fiction writer I, I or do. just a writer or a novelist yeah. i well I, I, a writer a novelist who loves literary fiction and aspires to it yeah put it that way i have to ask about the names in this book oh yes you have the the muir family you have an aspiring strongman who is named after one of America's most famous essayists. Yes. And yes. I'm curious, is this your answer to idiocracy? <laughs> <laughs> what what, what p- possessed you to name this good-hearted young gentleman Emerson? Well, I, I'm interested in names that have spirit in general, you know, and... Um, I think that names are like little mini titles that they give you little windows of information and um, uh, not necessarily that I want beautiful or pretty names or anything like that but just a name that does something that expands a little and so um, I think of Emerson for example as someone who's entered into this debate about individualism and independence and self-sufficiency um, and an American pioneering spirit in a sense um, he's he's a bit of a um, uh, what is the word exactly he responds to in a somewhat critical way to some of the Emersonian notions of individualism he is proactive mm-hmm. um, one gets the sense that maybe later he may turn into some sort of autodidactic type of some he kind. He very yeah. easily could. Yeah. I, There's hope for Emerson despite the fact that he doesn't quite know what's in Oregon and that sort of thing. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, he, I think he's a good person, you know, if I can say that. Um, 
Whatever that means, I think that's what he is. I think he's a good person in a really fundamental way. Um, he's solid. He's yeah. substantial. He um, is disciplined. He is hardworking. He has a lot to offer the world. He was denied a lot of things, like yeah. an education. And so he has to teach himself then. And there's much that I admire in the autodidact, actually. I think that um, there's something marvelous about a person who takes on their own education, especially when they've been denied it from the outside world. Yeah. So, um, so he's, he's someone I see in, in conversation with those kinds of issues, and um, not necessarily an adherent to an Emersonian idealism, but someone who is engaged with it. Do you believe that all of your characters are inherently good people, despite the fact that they do some fairly monstrous things? Mm, oh Very dear. juicy, monstrous things, I must say. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. That is an interesting question. I don't know if I do. I Maybe I do. But maybe I think that about everybody. Mm-hmm. I guess I think that about everybody, really, yeah. <laughs> in general. And so, yeah. Even the most monstrous members of our society, the oh, serial dear. killers, the... Oh, uh, yeah, right? Goldman Sachs banker who was probably a hoax. But uh, yeah, nevertheless, let's, right, let's assume right. that he's real for the course of this right, philosophical right, discussion. Right. Yeah, people you know. do. Well... A serial killer, there's... They mean well. Right. Right? Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Lord in heaven. The one percent who are now being protested, they mean well, right? Right, 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 right. How, how do you how do you balance this this uh, this sanguine well, view with that? I'll tell you. As a parent, I think you start to realize really soon after you have a kid that everyone was a baby at one time that everyone was a little child. Everyone had parents that hopefully, well, you know that not everyone was loved as a child. But I guess I do think that every child is good. Every little baby is good. And then they turn into something else. And that's when it gets complicated. That's what, that is what I am gonna say on that question. <laughs> And that is a sufficiently general uh, way out of that. There's, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about. I had located one interview where you said that you've been very inspired by sunlight and water since Crescent. And I noticed many cinematic touches, uh, such as Brian glancing at Fernanda and seeing gossamer strands of blue light on black hair. You have girls with their small chins tilted toward the light like sunflowers, and Jack Parkhurst's replica of his office view with chips of light flowing along the causeway a mile away. So this seems a good point as any to discuss what I think is the clear influence of Graham Greene upon your work, who also dabbled in such cinematic references, and also, well, what's with all the colons ever since origin? <laughs> hmm. I put forth to you, Miss Abu <laughs> What's this all about? <laughs> That's awesome. I am going to have to start reading Graham Greene. You have not? Uh-uh. Where did you get the colons from? I don't know. 
I honestly do not know where I got the colons from. That's so funny. Wow. Um, and the cinematic imagery. Well, the cinematic imagery is probably because I myself am obsessed with film. Yes. And I've always wanted to write a screenplay. Always, always, always. What stopped you? Laziness. Just, the routine, or the lack of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just probably a kind of, you know, that little voice in the back of your head that says, what are you, crazy? Are you going to write a screenplay? Oh, yeah, are you going to put it on in the barn? Um, but I have always, always wanted to write one. And I will. Someday, mark my words, I will write a screenplay. I hope. I'm, I'm going to come after you in five years. Okay, and, good. And, and I will, will play back the tape. Where's your screenplay? See, screen five years play? ago, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, but there, there's a, uh, I think, a screenplay director, movie director, Monkey inside of me. Um, I love film, and I think it is the medium of our age. Um, the do you think, visual. Do you think that this also explains one interesting element of this book with Felice uh, in describing her... You have other characters remark upon how beautiful she looks, yeah. but you don't really describe her in the prose, which I find really interesting. You remark upon her skin sometimes, but for the most part, it's generally other people's commenting upon her. So it's almost as if your supporting characters are participating in this in this look or this aesthetic. And and what's also intriguing about this is the added irony that she is also modeling for sketchy. People as well. So, so do you think this has something to do with this cinematic interest of yours, or, or how did this come about? I do think there is um, definitely some element of that. You know, thinking about Elizabeth Taylor as the <laughs> the the grand model. She was the start for Felice. She was she was one of the images that helped me conceptualize that character before she died I presume yeah Yeah. yeah. well see that's the thing about Liz Taylor is that um, I liked her as a kind of uh, inspiration because she has such two such distinct kinds of aspects in 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 the popular imagination Um, the, the great amazing beauty of her youth and then this sort of strange eccentric you know befriending Michael Jackson uh, kind of older woman Emerson is Michael Jackson <laughs> I hadn't thought about that yeah um, and also I have to ask I mean obviously her marriage to Richard Burton probably was an influence upon the fractious marriage here yes, in this book yes although yes. there's not as much violence and you know marriages and divorces and right. marriages you know yeah right know. right but but you're right there's that that kind of um who's afraid of virginia wolf yes. you know that the, there's a there's a kind of richness to elizabeth taylor that my characters aren't completely aware of and and because felice is often compared to her as a young person, she is completely unaware of what Elizabeth Taylor looked like. Sure. She has some vague idea of her in the contemporary media, and that's what she responds to. She just thinks, oh, that weird lady, that's who I'm supposed to look like. So I like, I'm playing with the idea of beauty a lot. Um, and, and that's part of what I try to take apart, because I think that Avis, the pastry chef, 
she doesn't see her children in that kind of deep way. She sees and appreciates and loves, adores their beauty, especially Felice, but she doesn't see them in that deep inward seeing that they need. Um, and so, and, and that does also connect with that, what film does and does not do. You know, that the playing of the image on the silver screen, that you have this uh, potentially only two-dimensional image that it's then up to the director, the filmmakers, to, to find a way to deepen and draw us into. Yeah. Um, and I feel like our culture is so screen-oriented that it flattens us out and it flattens our expectations out. And so you, you're in this constant struggle to deepen, to give dimension to some kind of art form to, to inform your reader's experience. Yes. So food is the way to get them away from the flattened culture. Food in prose, food in fiction, compelling, sensual engagements with the text like this. It definitely moves off the page, you know. It definitely, it's another, it's one of those points of connection that everyone can connect to it. Sure. Everyone knows about, you know, the, the pleasure of food and the experience of it. Um, whether it's high or low, um, it's, it's fundamental to all of us. And it's so sensory. Um, and, and I love that it brings us to our senses. It brings us into our bodies in a way that, that ideas and images just can't. Well, just for the sake of argument, do you think food serves the same function in fiction as it does in the cooking show culture that one sees on television? Because it has that same kind of narcotic allure that... Uh, this is why I don't have television because I'd probably be watching the food show. Oh, <laughs> man. Yeah. Oh. I'd be watching all these. I mean, I used to spend my Sunday mornings nursing a hangover watching like all of the cooking shows. It oh, was, it was I a marvelous. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was. But it had that sort of narcotic allure, just as I think it would in fiction. Do, would you say? Well, it, it can. It can. But, I, but it doesn't have to. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's where you have to watch how you use food, that it has to be something that functions as a springboard to something larger. That if you simply exalt food, and, and I do think there are writers and there are ways of doing that where it is, it's just food porn, basically. Yeah, you know, absolutely. it's just for the sensual experience of it. But if you move with it, and allow it either to move a scene, suggest something beyond itself, add dimension, that then it can actually enlarge um, a story, enlarge a scene, and, and take it to a new place, both, both in the senses and, and in the mind. You know, and that's, that's the trick. And that, I, I feel like American novelists often don't get that, that they tend to disparage food or ignore it because they don't think it's sufficiently intellectual. Yeah. You know, and actually... They're missing the point. Yes. Yeah. yeah a, a, a lot of European novelists get it. Oh, it, absolutely. You yeah. know? It, it, French and German novels, especially. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absol and 
it came, this came to to me very clearly last year. I was asked to to speak on this. It was like a literary seminar on food in Key West last year. That's great. <laughs> it was so cool. It was a really interesting experience. But they they were asking me. We wanted. We would like to have a whole panel of novelists who are using food as one of their big metaphors. Can you help us think of some others? What a problem that was, trying to find people who were who were not doing it kind of in a, a kitschy, you know, like there are murder mystery chefs or, you know, there are like women's fiction people who use, you know, food as a kind of cozy device. Or we're talking food as social indicator. T.C. Boyle is actually a very good guy with food. That's a great, uh, you know, shoot, I missed him. I, you know, you're absolutely right. Yeah. That's a great and, and example. And he also like cooks crazy meals for his wife as well. Does yeah. he really? Yeah, yeah he does. He, he's he prides himself on that. That makes me like him. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah, that's yeah. wonderful. Wow. Um, I thought Kate Christensen. She's another Kate Christensen, one. Kate Christensen, totally. Yeah. Um, but I I really had to think about it. You know, I really struggled to come up with. I can think of a lot of nonfiction people yeah. who use food, and the whole food memoir is very big now. But novels, Americans, I, I was really having to stretch to think of it. Yeah. Well, um, on that note, because I am about to run out of tape. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Diane Abujumper, thanks so much. It was a pleasure chatting with you. And Thank we'll you. Yeah. It's hard to say even one thing true. All eyes have turned aside, they used to talk to you And people on the street seem to disapprove So you keep 